A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to episode 44 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. This week, my guest is the magnificent musician Neil Sheesby from Stone Foundation. As we hear his story of a love of the jam at school, to the Star Council and Weller Solo, and plenty of collaborations with the great man himself since. We also dive into his book, Boys Dreaming Soul, which revisits the colourful, fun-soaked, music-obsessed travels of the bass player and his close sidekick, Hammy. So let's get into it. Neil, thanks for joining me. No problem. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Now, everybody calls you She's and Jonesy, Neil Jones with Stone Foundation calls you that, but Mr. Paul Weller calls you something different, right? <laughs> he probably calls me a few things. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, well, usually via text, he usually signs off Brother She's, you know, he refers to me as Brother She's, yes. Where did, where did uh, that come from? I just think it's one of his kind of acts of solidarity, I think, you know. Nice, yeah. I love it. <laughs> kind of well, Weller speak. <laughs> it's brilliant now I'm gonna we're gonna dig into so much stuff so thank you so much for joining me but I want to kick off with Boys Dreaming Soul which is your memoir which is just lovely and, and thank you so much for sending me a copy of this I have to say but it says here that it revisits the colourful fun soaps music obsessed travels of Stone Foundation bass player Neil Sheesby and his close sidekick Hammy and it's just Beautiful. It's brilliant. Um, I want to get into some bits of it, but it really kicks off straight into that intro with you telling this lovely story of dreaming about the jam in a geography lesson. Yeah, that, well, that's correct. Yeah. Um, the impact that they made, it just kind of engulfed my life, really. And even at school, I'd be daydreaming, you know, drifting off thinking about Paul Weller and the jam, you know. So I got to see them as well while I was at school as well. And I think I remember that the day I nearly uh, I nearly burnt the um, chemistry lab down the day I went to see them. I was just, you know, concentration had gone. I was just completely immersed in thinking about the jam. But in the book, I tell the story of where I've drifted off in the geography lesson, I think. And uh, my friend Noel Johnson sitting next to me and uh, he suddenly awakes me, taps me on the shoulder and, and Mr. 
present the teacher says he's asking what the capital of Uruguay is you know and I'm busy doodling on my uh, my jam book you know I don't know what the question is I'm on my exercise book just you know doing the jam logos and stuff so I've no <laughs> idea what the question is and he just nudges me and whispers oranges oranges and then oh he's pulled me out an oldie so I say oranges sir and of course the old class is in uproar and he knows I'm daydreaming and writing on my exercise book again graffiti in so uh, yeah I think it, I think in the book then it flicks to having that moment where I'm nodding off again but I'm on stage and Paul Weller's on stage with the Islington Town Hall and I'm thinking is this really happening I think that's kind of my own personal journey really that's what my story is with Paul's thing really is that I started from you know being a fan like everyone else like everyone who listens to your show really I'm just you know I was a massive jam fan followed the council around everywhere and then end up being mates with him it's just bizarre really and I live in a small little town in Warwickshire that's kind of situated between Coventry and Birmingham and everyone here knows my story as well so no there's no one thinking I'm playing the big bollocks of anything around here they know I was I was a fan of kids you know a school kid that was mad for the jam seeing them a couple of times and you know I got obsessed by it all and here I am you know they're all really pleased for me that you know musical journey and the musical path that I've been on since forming a band because of that really I suppose has led me here music you touch on there i mean it was a thing from day one for you music was always a passion starting with elvis and the beatles was that right with everybody you you find you you eventually find your own thing don't you uh, i think the beatles for some some bizarre reason it feels like we were all born a, i mean i'm i feel lucky to be the age i am in a way to the golden age of music because i was a teenager i turned a teenager in 1980 so 79 is when i first found what spoke to me and I, what I can't believe and listening to your other guests as well it's really amazing just how young everybody was really you know we're all around 12 13 when this pivotal moment hit us in, the, in many different aspects yeah uh, before that yeah the Beatles come back to the Beatles I think that's something you just seem to be it's like you wake you're born and you know the Beatles songs it's almost like they're, they're subconsciously there you know you know yeah. words it's singing hymns or whatever you know uh, so that was always there and their films being on telly the Elvis films were on telly when I was really young and then we'd had a smattering of records in the house you know my mum and dad weren't massive collectors but there'd be things I don't know like ELO 10cc or whatever that I enjoyed and then I was really into football so I was into collecting things as well so it was like football stickers and panini sticker book you know and on the playground we'd be swapping football stickers and then I remember the, the 79 it all changed. People, the currency changed from Panini stickers <laughs> to records, seven-inch records. Now, P started turning up and lists started circulating. This is the Keith Ricketts list you mentioned in the Keith, book, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> still lives just around the background there. Yeah, <laughs> Keith around, around the corner from me. And he was a few years older than me. Keith and uh, he was a punk he circulated a list he was selling some of the old records he would have had 76, 77 and so this would have been a few years later and the list circulating I thought oh I've got to get some of these to be great you know so amongst it was kind of I think it was Devo 999 Stranglers maybe so I bought a few off him, went round his house after school and bought a few records. So I wanted to get into it, you know, I wanted to collect these things like coloured vinyl was a thing as well, you know, mm-hmm. um, all for cats on pink vinyl and the Dickies yellow vinyl, you know, it was alluring, you know, to be 12 and see these beautiful objects, you know, you just wanted part of that world. So anyway, I bought these records and the one that really stood out, the sleeve just stood out, was This Is The Modern World by a band called The Jam, you know, and there they were, this Three guys looking cool. The guy in his own made kind of jumper with the tacked on arrows that I thought was fascinating. Then on the back, 
that kind of motion action picture of them playing live where Bruce is midair, you know, I just thought, wow, what's this? Put it on and I just kind of fell in love with it, you know, and it kind of transpired that that was the weakest album as well. You know? so, <laughs> I love that record, actually. So that's, that's up the debate, really. But that was it. So I thought, well, I've got some catching up to do now. So I think when I got toe to toe with it, it was the end of that year when Setting Suns come out and Eating Rifles, seeing that, uh, seeing them on Top of the Pops. And that was it, really. Uh, that I was just smitten. That was that, it all started and I think not just the jam as well I think youth culture in general then was like you got the first specials album that was on the doorstep in Coventry all that movement was happening and Quadrophenia had just come to the, the cinemas as well so that we all you know, clambering to try and get dodgy VHS copies of that to see that really because we're too young to get into the cinema to see it because it'd be an ex certificate, you know. So all that was going on, it all just exploded and that old mod revival thing happened. It was insanely exciting. As I say, even in a small town from where I live as well, that's how big the jam were, you know, it really touched all the provinces. It was amazing. And then the next year, 1980, was sound effects and that year for me just changed everything becoming a teenager sound effects was out and then another massive record for me was searching for the young soul rebels by dex's midnight runners between them two records that was really the eureka moment where i thought yeah this yeah, i want to be in a band i want to start a band this is incredible and that tied in with first seeing the jam as well and you know matinee gigs as well the first gig i ever went to was a matinee gig for under 15s it was madness at leicester demont hall so you know it's incredible to think that they were doing two gigs a night some bands like that as well you know all that was there for kids of a certain age it was just phenomenal you mentioned there's a, there's a lovely reference to the stack stereo <laughs> i'd forgotten was even a thing you know, like the idea of piling it, it, up it, your like, records yeah, yeah? <laughs> and that's right my dad had five singles he was involved in football across the road at Addison town football club and he was in charge of the pre-match entertainment which involved taking the dancette player over and stacking these same five singles and just used to put them on the beat and i still have them singles too uh, which was <laughs> t-rex the grand sam patches by clarence carter uh, woodstock by matthew southern comfort under my thumb by wayne gibson not the stones version and the witch by the rattles so you can imagine 22 players trotting out at sheepy road for non-league football to the witch go and go and play that now folks and you imagine the scene the rattles the witch and players are what bizarre you know but great <laughs> single so that fascinating the old mechanics of that fascinated me so all this was mounting up to lead to my complete obsession and fascination with music, really. I suppose this was the grounding of it all. Mm. And your first band was tied into the jam in a way with your dad and a Rickenbacker guitar. Yeah, basically my best friend, which was like the book, basically. I mean, that was kind of, I didn't want it to be indulgent. And really, I thought we want to read a story about me, really. So the story really hinges around mine and Amy's friendship who was my best friend who we, we started a band together back when we were kids then by the uh, you know our, our, our passion for the jam and sadly he passed away uh, in 2001 20 years ago now with cancer but early on when you, you, you're getting it together you always need a sparring partner you know you always need someone to, to you have these great sparks of imagination but you need someone as well to encourage that and Amy was my man really of course he, he was saying let's form a band then let's do it let's get a band you know and he got this guitar out of a club book or something his, his, his cousin had you know had two strings on it you know awful and he couldn't play it he never ended up playing it we got a guitar so he just sung in the air and his mate Gibby could play the drums so I was lumbered with the bass really but the idea never went away and my dad was like this is not going away is it you know so what you got to do I said well I'll be the, I'll be the bass but I'm Bruce Foxton like you know 
not going to be the bass player. Anyway, comes home a few weeks later and he said to me, there's a friend at work. He said he's got his bass. He's got a weird name, like, like a long name called Rick, Rick, something German sounding. Went, what, not Rickenbacker? He went, yeah, that's it. Because always we can't afford that. They're like, you know, that's what the jam <laughs> way beyond. And I can't even play. I don't even know which way to hold it yet, you know. So anyway, he come home. He did come home a couple of days later. He brought it up to my bedroom and opened this case. And he said, here, look, if you're serious about this music business and this malarkey and this band forming thing, learn this, you know, this weren't cheap, learn it. And I did, and I still got that bass, you know, and that's, I did take it seriously. And we got the band together. We started playing youth clubs, first of all, really, because, you know, that's where every, all, the, all the kids hung out and it was easy to, you know, provide the entertainment for them nights. So that's what we did. And we, we learned jam covers. We want, well, from day one, though, we wanted to write our own songs. We had a couple of our own tunes as well. But when you first learn, you know, we just thought, okay. So I think in the set we had, uh, this is the modern world, a bombing Water street, I think maybe precious can't remember anyway we've done about three or four jam songs as well as a couple of our own you know so yeah we've done these gigs at these youth clubs and nobody laughed you know so they all come back the next time so you know that's all the encouragement you need really when you're like 14 13 or whatever we just cracked on with it we got a local review in in the local music paper the Addison Herald and um, I bought that you know I think I bought two just like being in Mojo recently I was as proud as that Addison Herald as I was in the Mojo <laughs> two copies you know it'll Hammer buying it but you know just them signs of encouragement them little bits that make you you know just kick on to the next thing and it kept growing and growing and growing and eventually then you know my dad took another interest and thought well this is you know this is pretty good and we went on he got us that platform from going from the youth clubs to the university circuit and then we started supporting bands you know we went from Baz the youth club to the next year we're playing Aston University you know and then we were supporting people like Hazel O'Connor Steve Harley and Cockney Rebel and that just went on from there and in the end of it by the end of all that we were on tour with Gil Scott Aaron Roy Ayers it really you know got legs on it and it become a, a proper thing we have to talk about Bob Says Opportunity knocks, though oh do we Oh dear. Um, no, well, we got hoodwinked into that, really. We didn't know what that was. We were told that it was a uh, audition for some new TV show. So we went along to this audition and it was like jugglers in the, in the corridor and, and, you know, young ballet dancers and acrobats. And we're like, what, what the fuck is going on here? She was assigned to this kind of dressing room thing. And this, this guy was there, who I think was a bit of a comedian. I was dressed up in all the tucks and that. I said, excuse me, mate, do you know what? I don't know what these additions are for, do you? And he said, um, yeah, uh, Bob says. And I says, Bob, Bob says what? He goes, Hop Knox. He goes, oh, no, not, not Opportunity Knox. <laughs> he went, yeah, he looked disgusted. And it's like, oh, God, we can't do this. You know, what are we doing here? So we thought, well, we're here now. We was all do. We're never going to get through. We did it. Thought we did nothing else. And then we got through you know we're doing one of our own songs as well somehow it really wasn't for us and i remember when we got the call to say we've been accepted onto the show we were rehearsing for a leicester uni gig sport in bad manners i know mobile phones so i had to nip back home i got a call caretaker come and told me my mum was on the phone you need to go back home so i went back home got the phone it was someone from the bbc congratulations i hope you're sitting down you know you're on you've made it to national tv and i was like oh god i was must be the most mortified person ever <laughs> you've ever spoke to now look i've got to stop you there because 
this isn't for us, you know, this is, I'm sorry, you know, um, we thought about it and, you know, it's really not, not for us. We don't, and she goes, what, really? She goes, oh, well, you'd be the most expensive band we've ever had on as well, because there's like eight of you in it and you're all musicians, union, right? And I went, uh, yeah, yeah, well, we weren't, but, you know, I said, oh, yeah, I think Coddy was, that was it. She goes, oh, well, you're there for a week, you know, with your, your, your dress rehearsals and we've got to do all the choreography with it. But I was like, okay, right, so how much are we talking? They gave us this astronomical fee, really, for whatever it was, 1986, seven, whatever it was. Yeah, somehow against the better judgment, I think all the other lads in the band really fancied being on national TV and I really weren't into it, but um, I got all winked into it and we did it. No one died, so it was all right, you know. <laughs> but it kept us afloat. Again, it kept us afloat for a few years afterwards, really. It financed the band and it was dreadful, though. Thankfully, there's no footage of it on YouTube. It was like a TV talent show, wasn't it? And there's like a little interview that you had to do with Bob Monkhouse, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, it, that was in the that was in the, the day before when they're doing the rehearsals and Monkhouse sits next. He's a very weird bloke, Bob Monkhouse, actually. He was very vacant. Um, and then he switched on once the cameras were rolling. And he was orange, you know, literally. Whereas he was, you know, got a real kind of, I don't know, it's a real suntan or whether they had fake tan back then, I don't know, but he, he was, had like orange skin. And he sat on the sofa and he, and he said, so what, what, what's the ambition then, boys? And Amy turned to him and said, to have a suntan like yours, Bob? And no, he didn't, <laughs> didn't pop funny he wasn't happy so sure <laughs> but then the other thing I was going to mention I'm sure I've read that at one point John Weller was trying to get the jam onto Opportunity Not. no that's right yeah I've seen that when I went to the, the ex- I never knew that until I went to the um, the All About the Young Idea exhibition and you could see that, that, that yeah well you got to think it was probably the X Factor of his day it was the only you know, one show that's prime time Saturday TV and it was millions and millions of viewers there's only what three channels then yeah so it was a massive show but still I wasn't comfortable doing it I thought it was really naff but um yeah, everyone thought it was great and people still talk about it now, but I thought it could have killed us really. And But it never really, you know, I mean, we were hoping maybe, you know, the exposure, it might kick us on because we were doing our own thing. It wasn't ever saw an original tune we were doing. We weren't succumbing to showbiz as such. And I remember in the weeks after the show, thinking that we might, you know, get a knock on from it. The only thing that we got was a phone call from rugby working men's clubs if we wanted to do a week on Saturday or something. I think that was all, all that. <laughs> <laughs> the dizzy height itself, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the jam split, the Style Council were a really big deal for you as well, weren't they? Massive. Yeah. Well, the difference between the jam and the council, even though I was a huge jam fan, they weren't my band. I wasn't there. At the beginning, I was too young. You know, I picked up, as I say, 79 into 80. So with the council, I was there from day one. I literally, the, the minute, you know, the formation, I was there first tour and I've seen them every tour since, um, seen countless times the council. So they felt like my band. It felt like, you know, I was there from day one, connected from the minute they were off. And all that that vibe he was putting out with using Steve would only be 17 and Anthony was only probably six months older than myself, you know, being involved. It was so refreshing. It was like, their own youth club really but yeah I was devastated kind of when I remember being in Gail's news agents picking up the NME and the statement come out about the jam splitting but the way it was worded as well whilst I was devastated and thought well what next you know what's going to happen this is like the end of the world that statement was really poignant and it what, what that what probably was the moment when we did form the band when he was talking about the new breed and picking up that mantle and passing on the baton really I thought that was even now you look back you can't think really of anyone else maybe that's from that era that never reformed or, or made any shoddy comebacks. Even The Clash went on and done one album too many, really, for me. So I really think there's a lot of integrity. And when people are calling for that, I think they really don't get 
the bigger picture and the idea behind it. I don't see why anyone would want to see that happen again. Let's let's pray it never happens. I won't anyway. I know Paul, it won't never happen. He doesn't enter his, his train of thought at all. Mm-hmm. So it's always preserved in time for what it was. But the council, what's fascinating for me, Dan, looking back on it, when you look at the, the, the timeline, 82, town called Malice, the summer of 83, with three singles into the Star Council, you know, you listen to something like Long Art Summer, all right, speak like a child, you could say, could possibly pass as a jam tune, spot, solid bomb we know was money go around possibly not but where it moves then to my ever-changing move shout to the top the apre ep that's only it's not even a year Mm. it's phenomenal when you look at the timeline really what we must have been thinking and what songs he would have been creating even at the end of the the jams lifespan fascinating the fashion was a big thing for the style council for you as well everything about it i mean he was doing the respond thing too there was the torch society the way Anne would type letters you know everything about it was was fantastic but the imagery around it all the the one put it right next to me i was looking at them this morning the style population magazine oh wow you got them all i got them all yeah of course i was i'm not for me now. There's, there's my torch I know no one can see this but there's my torch society amazing uh, amazing amazing Frank. but the old imagery the old the, them, them style population things you know the way that there's that picture of him and Mick that you don't see very often that's in the centre of the first one where they're playing the pinball machine the clothes just went the style just went hand in hand you know I always thought that was a good sign as well that it was Mick Talbot that was his partner in it and he'd been a, briefly a member of Dex's and only, only for a fleeting moment but also been in the Bureau which kind of my favourite bands too and I thought this is a really good sign and of course I just thought it was insanely exciting and the anti-rock thing you know the way it was a collective and for a while it was just him and Mick and then Steve kind of joined and D but it was still using different musicians but the clothes thing as well it was just fun I mean you just look back to them early pictures well all throughout really I just think it's incredible imagery. I mean, Simon Alphon, who's in the sleeves as well, the old typeface, the, the way this, the, everything was presented. I was just brilliant, really. I thought it was genius. And the songs, I mean, it all comes back to the music and we'll talk about your Stone, the Stone Foundation stuff in a second as well, but it's always about the songs ultimately, isn't it? It was a real great patch for Paul there. I think, you know, it, you know, not everything stuck, but he wrote so much stuff when you think that there was so much stuff that came out before the first album as well. And when the first album come out, then you got instrumentals. He's not singing on half of it as well. It's just so brave and bold and different. For someone who, like I say, you forget how big the jam were. They were huge. You know, no one had been straight into number one, you know, until since the Beatles, until the jam did it. So at that peak of his popularity, to tear all that up and start again and do something so bold, so brave and so different, I just thought, you know, even look back on it now, it's inspiring. It's inspiring to me. You know, if I ever want to catch inspiration for tunes or whether it'll be for, you know, doing, we're coming to doing a sleeve or whatever, I'll just flick through them records and have a little look and put myself back in that time because it never fails to excite me and ignite my imagination. And talk of the fashion, there was a trip to Spain as well where you went over to get some cardigans and, and Lacoste t-shirts and all that kind of stuff as well, right? Yeah, it was the first time I went to Mallorca uh, and it was the pastel pinks and lemons that the council had put in. It was either cardigans over the shoulder pastel colours for socks or no socks at all you know all that thing and I thought this is great it's all young European vibe I thought it's just brilliant great image and yeah and Lacoste, you couldn't buy them in the UK at the time there was a pastel pink one and a lemon one Lacoste cardigans and I bought one of each and brought them back and the 
the, the lemon one. I remember Amy and his dad coming around and they said, oh, we've got a trip down to the Kersley Colliery today. Do you want to come? I said, yeah, I'll come along. I just thought we were going to shake hands or have a look around at some museum or something. I didn't realise we were actually going down <laughs> so you've got your oh, lovely, turn, lovely cardigan on <laughs> no. I turn up my lemon cardigan and go fucking what are you dressed as because we're going down the pit I goes, oh Jesus so I'm obviously the best dressed man ever to go down a coal mine you know and there's a man rider you know and I thought well when's it stop they don't stop you have to jump up you know so bizarre yeah so, yeah I went down Kersley pit in a lemon lacoste cardigan yeah <laughs> love it you mentioned the Stalkouts of Life you went to Red Wedge as well right yes I did yeah I went to a couple of Red Wedge gigs yeah can you, can you remember who else was on the lineup? Well, yeah, the big one, actually. One night when I went, I can't remember if it was Birmingham or maybe Leicester, it was Morrissey and Mar turned up, actually. It was one of the few ones that they did. Right. Uh, the Communards done most of them. They were on. Junior Giscombe, of course. Who else did I see on the Red Wedge? Council. Oh, Billy Bag would be on. Communards. Yeah, but Morrissey and Mar were the big one. Come on and done a couple of tunes. Yeah, I never got to see the Smiths, so it was closest I ever got to, really. But yeah, great idea. I think War pulled down a little bit, though, that. I think he was just disappointed after that with the old political thing i think that kind of changed his mind a little bit you know but uh, it was good you know it's good spectacle because well from the musicians it was the right intentions so. before you formed stone foundation with jonesy as i now know him um, because you've nearly been together as a band for 25 years and we'll talk about that in a sec you were there right at the beginning of the paul weller movement four nights in a row you were you went right well i went to Lowe's actually but the four nights in a row that you're referring to would have been when he'd done the small london gigs which yeah. would have been tally two I think it was Subterranean, definitely the Mean Fiddler. I uh, can't remember the other one. But yeah, four nights then in London. They played four nights on the bounce. And um, even at Town and Country, actually, that was mad because the council and Eddie just split up, really. And Mick got on stage and Dee got up and they all got a little reunited a little bit because Steve was drumming for him he did What's Going On I think actually in the cover of What's Going On Marvin, I think that's right so there's a brief reuniting of the council at there but the, the Mean Fiddler gig is probably still to this day one of the best gigs I've ever seen Paul do it was amazing I remember him starting with a new tune that night boiling up and there was a power cut and he started with this new song first tune he played and it turned out to be Wildwood sounding that out at that gig but yeah I've seen the movement loads of times I mean he kind of he dismisses that, doesn't he? In interviews, you know, he kind of glosses over that and said, oh, I was lost finding my feet. But you can talk to any kind of Paul Weller fan and, and uh, that were at them gigs and they, they were really special affairs. You know, they were really good. It, you could tell he was reigniting with the, the audience. He was finding his, his, his mojo again, definitely. They were really, really exciting gigs to be playing these university halls as well. That's, when I first met him, actually, just as a fan, I met him outside Nottingham, Trent Polly. So that was the first time I passed across and was able to speak to him. Amazing time. Great. I was really excited, you know, and that first album, it's incredible. I just think it's a brilliant record. The songs are just fantastic. Yeah. And there's the video. I don't know if it ever came out on DVD, but the Brixton Academy gig, which was um, the movement. Yeah. That, I think that stacks up. It's brilliant. I think you're right. Like the version of Precious alone is, is worth that entire, the price you pay for the VHS. It's just, yeah, I love it. Brilliant. I love that. Brilliant. What the old tour was like, he really had the fire back, you know, it, it was, a, it was a great time to see him. Well, see him in them venues as well. You know, we'd gone from, you know, the NEC or something by the time of Cost of Loving. And then you're back and he's just like, you're three or four rows back again, reconnecting. But just sort of the first time, you know, hearing them, them tunes from the first album. And then he was, yeah, back, as you say, playing a couple of tales from the Riverbank, I think. Uh, there was Precious in there. You know, mind-blower to see him, you know, back 
on form and it coincided that whole period as well you know it coincided with clothes again style thing with the Duffer of St George being on Darby Street and the old acid jazz thing was about to kick off and the rare groove thing had happened so it was no coincidence that Paul again becomes at the forefront he's like this connection with them scenes as well you know it's no no coincidence that that it all starts on old scene starts again which always seems to happen around around Paul's thing you know yeah, well, that look at that time is so sharp as well, isn't it? He, he's, he's yeah. brilliant. Yeah, Andy Lewis and I were talking yeah. about that. He looks incredible. Uh, so 1997 Stone Foundation formed. Is that right? Am I getting the my dates right? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, I, I, well... I, yeah, that was the year we formed and I'd done an old stint um, in the bands, you know, from when I formed, that was a kids band, the in crowd. Then we went to Dance Dance, which was d- done all the uni tour with that. Then I had a rare group band called Rare Future that Acid Jazz really picked up on. We'd done some recordings there. So I'd had an old, I don't want to use the word career, you know, I don't know, I'll stab at it really. I thought I was done. I was 30 years old. So I thought that's it, you know, and um, it was my wife, Claire. We just got together in 96 and, and uh, another late great friend of mine called Al Cowan that said, you're not giving this in cheese. There's no way you're going to give him music, man. You've got to give it another go. You know, it's in your blood. It's what you do. Neil's band supported my band, Mandrake Root, at the Laurel Tree in London. And I knew he was local and he was only in Tamworth, just up the road. And he said, go and have a look at that singer. I know you liked him and that, he, you know, that's what I needed because I'm, you know, I'm no singer. So I, want, I was writing songs, but I mean, he was too ill to sing by this point. So that's what I really felt like it come to a standstill. So even Amy said to me, he was still alive then. He said, go, yeah, go out. You've got to do it again, Sheets. You've got to get a band together. I said, I have got the energy to do it, Amy. And I went and had a look at Neil. We went to Birmingham, Flapper and Firkin. And I said to him, look, got a few tunes. I'm thinking about maybe starting a band or doing something. But don't split your band up. You know, I said, don't, you've got something good going on here. You know, he, he was with a band called Walrus Gumboot with his friends from college. I said, don't split that up. You know, let's just see how it goes. Let's get together and see what comes up try writing a few tunes Neil being Neil next week he split the band up and that was it he was all <laughs> right in that. <laughs> and here we are and here we are 23 years later now so the 25th will be in a couple of years but um, yeah it took us a while to get it off the ground really because again finding lineups finding like-minded musicians we had a full, few false starts so it took yeah several years really to get going I suppose but um, we got there obviously got, but the thing is with Stone Foundation and mine and Neil's thing all the time it seemed to kept finding this forward upwards trajectory and momentum every record or every recording and made was better than the last one so as long as that kept happening that kept us interested and kept us curious and kept us creating and striving for new ideas and that seems to still be the case to this day you know I mean what really changed for us was when in 2011 when John Bradby walked into the Fiddler's Elbow and and caught us playing a gig invited us onto the specials tour the arena tour of of, of 2011 so we were fortunate a lot enough to play places like Alexandra Palace, uh, the Rico Arena, state like stadium arena gigs. So you know that a percentage of that crowd will latch on to your your thing, hopefully. And they did. So that meant we could go to places like Scotland and before we would have been playing to, you know, one man and his dog, but now we had an audience so we could build upon it. So bless John Bradbury as well. He's now he's now passed on, but he changed everything for us that did really. Confidence for a band is really important, isn't it? It put wind in our sails. Yeah, that's what it is. It's that it's like a, a validation thing, you know, it's just like someone like John. And then later, obviously, we'll come to Paul in a second, but someone like Paul as well, it just, it's that respect and you think, we, we must have something. There must, we must be doing the right thing, you know, because we don't, 
overanalyze it. I don't sit back and look at it and think, oh, God, it'd be great. I never think that. I'm quite the opposite. I'm always striving to, to do better, really. Yeah, you know, it, it does really, that, that's Kevin's confidence. Yeah, the, 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 the gestures like that from, from John Bradbury and the, the lads in the specials and then later in later in life, Paul, it's just the things that, you know, are gold dust, really. Now, we talked to uh, Jonesy about life working with Paul Weller and I'd love to get your your view on it with, this, uh, with the work that you've done as well. Because so these songs are really, I mean, for, for us as Paul Weller fans, when you release an album, it's like, okay, we're getting all of the great stuff we love about Stone Foundation, but it also feels like you're kind of getting so at times like a new single or a new album from Paul Weller in a way as well, because there's so, certainly when Street, yeah. ri- Street Rituals and, um, you know, those songs like Bloon is Rising back in the game, Deeper Love from, yeah. was it last year? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's lovely to hear all that stuff, but we need to do a correction on this podcast because the first meeting with Paul <laughs> was slightly different from your angle versus Neil's, right? <laughs> as if I was hurl insults at Paul Weller. I'm a polite man, you know. I just yeah, what did he said that you called him what was it? He said I called him a mud jippo bastard. Yeah, and I did actually. But, <laughs> but not the first meeting. Yeah, he, can, he took it completely out of context. Yeah, basically, when we turned up to the first session, my bass, I had a music band Stingray bass, and he looked at it a bit suspicious, and he was like, are you sure about that? And I was like, what do you mean? He went, music man, he was like looking at it. I said, mate. Wait, wait till I plug it in and listen to it, right? Because it makes a great noise. I said, you know what? I said, you know why I got this? I said, I got it because I thought it looked cool. I seen Sade's bass player playing one, although he played it right up by his chest. I said, I thought that the actual bass looked really cool. And Paul went, hmm, yeah, yeah, okay. You see that appeal to him, you know, rather than the music. He's not really a muso himself, actually, you know. He's, he's not really into that. Neither am I. And we decided, so we're talking a bit about guitars and sounds. As long as it's not got five strings, you know, surely it's all right. And he goes, I can't have five strings. So we agreed on that. We agreed that that's going to be a bit of a Genesis moment of five strings. So anyway, we've done the session and we were getting on famously. And at the end, he's going, fuck, man, man, because that, that bass sounds great. He goes, I didn't really, you know, it really just sound good. Anyway, time elapses. That session, we go home and months go by and we go back for the next session and I turn up with a Fender Precision. He said, jeez, fucking hell, where's, where's the music man's thing there? And in the meantime, the truss rod in the neck had bent and had a real problem with it. So I'd had it years and years. So I decided, sadly, I mean, regrettably, because I really didn't want to get rid of it, but I sold it and traded it for a precision. And I said, it's you, innit? I said, you fucking cursed it, didn't you, you mud bastard with me, mate? And of course, by this time, we kind of knew each other a bit more because he thinks that's funny. Because we all got hauled into Claire's office. To, you know, at one point when he wasn't there just to read book and stuff. And he goes, Oh, because he really likes you, like, you know, as people. He goes, I think it's the fact that you don't, you're not yes people and you have crack and there's no, you know, because which one of you anyway called him a mud jippo bastard? And I was like, <laughs> Call it two steps backwards, keeping my head down. And they all look at me and he goes, you know, he loved that. You know, it's really funny. So uh, <laughs> I didn't just walk into a room of Paul Weller and they'll start hurling insults at him, you know. <laughs> that's, that's sound advice. Yeah. I appreciate the advice. So I'll make sure. Leave it to the second yeah. meeting. <laughs> yeah. But no, the, the, the first, so, you, so yeah, the initial thing, see the thing coming back to it, Dan, is back, even with the specials tour and with Paul's thing, it's the same thing, right? We always you know, take great pride in what we're doing and the way we present our live gigs and everything. You've always got to prepare for an opportunity. You've always got to think that that opportunity will be around the corner. So with Paul's thing, I mean, Neil told you the story when he called. I was on holiday. He said he was at Stu- Neil, I think Neil may have been 
doing something at the studio. But I was in Spain. Neil called me when I was in, I was in Tenerife. I nodded it with the family. And the phone went, and it's Jonesy. And I'm like, can he not leave Richard Clare's going? Does he have to phone you? I nodded it as well. It's like, <laughs> and of course, he pick up me because you're never going to believe who's called. He's just called me. And he tells me, you know, what he related to you with the Weller phone call. Because we have to give respect here as well to Mark Baxter because what, what had been happening initially, how this come about is we'd gone into Black Barn for the To Find a Spirit album, which is a couple of albums previously, to record a vocal for Carleen Anderson. So we'd met Charles. This is where the first time we met Charles. And just because it was close to it, Carleen, and we thought, well, we'll see if we can get it and back set that up for us to Charles. Paul wasn't about then, but we went in and recorded that vocal. So we met Charles. So I think all these things were fed back to Paul. He's very astute who's coming into Black Barn and who's in the studio and what's going on. So he would have asked how Carleen was, what were them lads like? You know, Charles would have said, the nice lads, you know, I'm sure all this would have carried on. We knew Baxter fed back the records. He gave Paul to find the spirit and life unlimited. Paul had had pictures with him. Now we don't know whether they go straight in the bin or whether you know he takes a moment and listens to them you know he's no he's no prop either so he wouldn't have a picture with the record that he wouldn't want to endorse anyway so we thought he must have kind of listened to it and liked it subsequently we found out he did he liked Beverly the tune from Life Unlimited album and there was that's the way I want to live my life there's a couple of things he really really liked so I think he found himself with a bit of time and he was writing something for Steve Ellis and demos for Steve and he said to Bax what about your boys the lads you know Stone Foundation if they'd be interested Interested in finishing this little demo idea. So I think he was testing the water, really. So coming back to what I'm saying, Dan, it's that preparation for opportunities. This opportunity arises as soon as we know Paul Weller's called us and he's inviting us down to Black Barn for, you know, a get-together and run through some ideas. There's no way we're having some jam session. I don't believe in that anyway. Jamming, I didn't join a band to aimlessly noodle for, you know half hour or an hour or hours on end <laughs> we said right let's write some tunes let's get serious we've got this idea so we, we do we finish Limit of a Man and that becomes what it is me and Neil look at that and develop that tune there were six songs on that first session we went in with so we said we're going with solid ideas so hopefully we, we have this scenario in our heads that transpired to be exactly correct that Paul sitting on a session he'd plug his guitar in and play and or play piano and we worked through some ideas that we had, and that's what we did. So if we hadn't been so prepared for that first session, I'm not sure we would have got the result that we did. He would have gone on to produce Street Rituals. But I remember walking back from the nest, we'd gone up for a coffee. It was me and him, we, we had a moment, and he said, what's your plan for this then, Cheese? What are you going to do? I said, I don't know, Paul. I've not really thought about it, really. Probably just a little EP. We'll probably do something to the Japanese label, P-Vine, and put like a four-track EP out. He said, it's a bit, it's a bit good for that, though, isn't it, mate? Why don't we make an album? Why why don't you go away and write another batch of four or five tunes and come back because I've got no touring plans or anything. We'll put something in the diary and we'll do it again because I've really enjoyed the last couple of days. Let's let's do it again. So that's what happened. And then he, he kind of got really involved and ended up producing the record. And um, the balloon story, as you know, as well, you know, we had that. That was bizarre because that's the song. In fact, there's the demo there. Look, that's 1999. That's the original balloon <laughs> demo. We discarded that for years. We never released it, you know. So there it is from over 20 years ago. And it was bizarre. Me and Neil never looked backwards. We never do old tunes. We never think about what we've, we've done years ago, really. We make a record, leave it there, and then move on, you know. But that tune coming to our heads, both of us, it was a bit like I kind of wrote the chorus, like and Dusty Springfield, No Easy Way Down. She uses that balloon uh, simile in the chorus. I thought, oh, that's nice. And then there's Black Balloons by Syl Johnson. I thought, Oh, I like the idea of that imagery of a balloon, you know, your you, old spirit rising and everything. So that was all about that. And the verses were a little bit more like 
a shack kind of thing Michael had. We both thought about it and we revisited. So wouldn't it be great to do that? That could really work. Maybe, you know, it's something we could ask Paul to sing. It would be a missed opportunity if we didn't really get him to try and do a vocal. And Neil went away, reworked the verses. You know, we, when we went into our own rehearsal room and we went around the reeking a little bit with it, we, we had a version that sounded a bit like Tim Buckley. We had one that was really downbeat like the Velvet Underground. It all worked, but it wasn't correct. And then finally, we on the fill it on the little waltz time kind of thing, and it all just the song grew as you knew and developed as you know it, as you hear it. We took it to Paul. I think he changed the key and recorded it in, in one take. You know, it was brilliant. And so we he ended up featuring on that back in the game as well. But it was a weird time for me that, right? Because it, it, it was amazing because you're working with one of your musical heroes and I had this thing where, you know, oh God, you know, God, I've got to go down Paul Wellers to mine. But I didn't have any nerves simply because the other thing that was happening was that my life was two parallels. It was so beautiful that that was happening. But I spent all of 2016 in and out of hospital because my mum was dying. She had, she'd had a stroke and um, she never came out of hospital. But while she'd had consciousness, she knew that I was going to work with Paul. She had that thought in her head. So she knew that was going to be happening. So I, hadn't, I was going to Coventry every day back and forth to see her in the hospital and she was drifting in and out of consciousness and she was partly medication and partly the stroke she would talk a lot of kind of fantasy and gobbledygook or she'd talk about something that happened 50 years ago when she was a child or something so it's kind of sad but anyway so I had all this going on but the first time when I had to go away was to go to Black Bar and work, start working with Paul so I got I hadn't got too much time to think about it so that was a good thing because I didn't get too nervous about it plus it was weird in a kind of way because I kind of felt that I've known Paul all my life, even though not known him being such a fan as well, you know. So I thought we'll be okay. And it was, it was brilliant. First thing is, as I think has already been mentioned, he helps us get the gear out, the van, he makes us a cup of tea. And the universal language music, we all sat there in that circle playing music. We started playing um, Limit of a Man together because that's the first thing he'd sent to us. And it all just clicked. Paul just becomes part of the band. We had a magical few days. So I sail straight back off. When I go home, I don't even come home first. I go straight to the hospital right, to see how my mum is. So I see the head nurse and she goes, how's my mum been? She says, well, she's been fine, but she's, she's really on a weird one now at the minute. She thinks, right, you're in a band and you're making a record with Paul Weller. And I said, right. <laughs> come with me. I said, come with me. <laughs> so I take the nurse. So my mum's conscious. And I said, mum, mum. I go, show, I show on my phone, I show a picture of me and Paul Weller from the previous day where we've been in the studio. And she just beams a smile and starts laughing. And I turn it to the nurse. The nurse goes, no way. She goes, Chris, it's right. Look, there he is. She goes, what, you've really made it? I goes, yeah, you're a musician. So, and that was the last time I got to see a smile, bless him, and laugh out loud. It was beautiful, beautiful, you know. And um, to have that experience as well, of recording and Paul's vocal on Balloonies Rising, it was really... A thing for me, man. It was mad. So we recorded, it was Limit of a Man. We finished the recording of that after all the drama of it being sent to us. It finally completed. We're having a pay- playback. And Paul's mum comes in, but Anne comes into the studio and she cocks one ear onto the speakers and she's listening and she's listening intently to it, lets the song play. And when it finishes, she says, Paul, Paul, play that again. Play that again. And he's shuffling around as a son would do when his parents are in, you know, a bit mildly embarrassed. So we play the track again and she says, Paul, Paul, do you know who that reminds me of? He went, no. The bloody Star Council. Not like it was a bandit. He didn't, you know, he wasn't in, you know what I mean? And he goes, oh, right, mum, right, mum, yeah, yeah, yeah. And 
when she shuffled off her, he said to me, because fucking hell, she's because at least she never said the Thompson twins. <laughs> Brilliant. That's incredible. And also as a Staff Council fan, on the last album working with Whitey, or the last couple of albums working with Whitey and Mick Talbot. Again, yeah, we knew, well, we knew Steve, I think, before we knew Paul. So, and he's helped us out when Phil's not been able to talk because we're still working lads. I mean, Phil still works shifts, four on, four off. And sometimes he's not been able to commit to doing tours when we've been to Germany or whatever. So Whitey stepped in and, and drummed as well, which is incredible. You know, I kind of take things for granted like that now, but he stopped till you turn around and you're like, Jesus, God, that's Steve White. <laughs> yeah, we're mixing involvement over the last couple as well has been great they've just got involved and helped out and again though Dan it's just about if they didn't like the music or didn't like the songs they wouldn't do it you know and we wouldn't get them in for the sake of it either there's lines where we think well that's kind of we need some we need a bit of magic we need a bit of sparkle on this so you know we ask Mick or we want something different from the kit so I'll ask Steve to play on a couple of tracks just to mix the sound and I've always liked that I mean that comes from the Star Council that thing for me is of all the collaborations happened long before we met Paul, like I said, with Carleen, Andy Fairweather, Lowe's been on records, Graham Parker, Nolan Porter. So it's something we've always done, but that comes from my love of those early council collaborative records and also later on things like Massive Attack when they have people mm. collaborating. So that's something me and Neil always wanted to do with Stone Foundation anyway. You know, we're blessed to have these people that, that are willing to, to, to perform on our records. Now, I have to ask you about the Weller Shoe Collection. <laughs> I can't remember uh, how this came up. Someone asked, didn't they? I've seen on Twitter it, it's shown out that yeah, yeah, someone... Oh, right. oh, no, one of your guests. So Kevin Miller, one of the honorary councillors, <laughs> his question, if I ever meet Paul Weller, was to basically ask him what he does with all of his loafers. We've now found the answer because they come to you. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm the retirement... <laughs> Well, as loafers, yeah, that's right. No, it's really Andy being the same shoe size as Paul Weller, actually. Yeah, no, he's, he's very generous like that. Not only is he really generous with his his time musically, he's, he's great with all that as well, you know. I mean, I, went, I was there recently, just the other week, and there was a little note for me left for me, four shoes, and there was a pair of trousers and another pair of shoes on the side in, in the studio. And Charles goes, oh, we've left them for you. So, it's, yeah, it's wonderful. But that's, that's nice as well because... You know, he's, he's complimented me a couple of times on my bass playing, but more importantly, he's complimented me on my clothes. And for Paul Weller to compliment you on your attire, then surely, you know, <laughs> become his little standard joke when we'd done the Forest tour. When I used to pop out the changing room to go on stage to walk up, he always used to go, uh, look me up and down and say, you uh, you're getting changed then, cheese. You know, just <laughs> so that's nice, you know. Yeah, but yeah, I've got, I've got a, a pile of Paul's shoes, definitely, yeah. And they're cool as well. Oh, they're really they're cool. Not, I mean, this is not two uh, at Sainsbury's, is it? This is these No, this is not Dulcet. No, that's right. Yeah, very good. Now, you guys have been hard at work during lockdown. Jonesy told us a new album's on the way. What can you tell us? Because it's been a few months since I spoke to him. Where are we at on new music? And obviously back touring very soon now, yeah? Yeah, we're looking forward to that, yeah. Yeah, we're done. We're finished. Case closed on the new record. It's coming out um, next year, early next year. I think there'll be a few, there'll be a single in the summer maybe a couple of tracks before Christmas, but we've we've just finished mastering, so it's all done, yeah. Wow. And <laughs> me and him were, t- were terrible. We, we, we started new demos already. We've been in this week doing more. I don't know what we're going to do with them all, you know. Okay. <laughs> it, there'll be some box set when we're done and gone, I'll tell you, we'll just keep writing. It's just, well, that's it. Wind in the sails, you know. We just, we, you know, it was the thing we could do in lockdown, really. We couldn't gig. So 
we could do under under the guise and premise of working. We were allowed to go in the studio. So Paul allowed us back in Blackburn. So that's what we did. We utilised the time and recorded and recorded another record. And it sounds great. Really different again. I'm really, really pleased with it. And yeah, touring. Hopefully we're back out in October on the main tour. We've got a few gigs through summer. We just can't wait because that's our bread and butter really. And that's the way we, we, we can actually kind of pay ourselves and pay the band and keep afloat as well by touring. So it's been great. All the people that supported us with the releases that we did put out as well in the last album that we weren't able to tour that come out in October and the plans to tour that were shut down because of the pandemic so the people that got behind that record sold really well and I think part of that as well was our fan base supporting us as well and we're internally grateful for that really good out of the people who come along to our gigs yeah yeah absolutely and two things on that so one uh, is there anything you can tell us about the new LP anybody on it that we would be a little surprised any 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 Weller connections I can't give that one away, can I, really, yet? But <laughs> no, Paul, you can't keep Paul off a record. At the it's mad because he's on there, but he's not really featured as much. He just comes down, he's helped out on playing on a few bits because I just think he likes hanging out. If we're in the studio, he'll, he'll text and say, I'll oh, pop down tomorrow and he'll come and see us just, just on, you know, just on like friendly terms, just to hang out, have something to eat or whatever. And then he can't help himself. He's there. She, she's like, yeah, I've got a bit of piano on this. You know, I can hear a bit of guitar. I'm like, well, you, be my guy. I'm not going to tell you you can't play on our record, you know. You know, it just happens naturally. It's just, you know, happens that way. It's great. I look at it a bit like, really, you know, how we used to turn up on Robert Wyatt records and that. You know, it was on nearly every Robert Wyatt album for a while. And it's similar to that. Yeah. We know it's not become a song and dance thing now. It's just Paul's, it's his studio. You know, he, he's the gaffer. And if he's down there, he'll, he'll get involved. Robert Wyatt that's will tell you about Paul's nature and how he is because I think a lot of people the great misconception is that he's this very serious kind of man and a bit political or whatever but he's quite the opposite he's a really funny guy he's one of the funniest geezers I've met he's really generous and really kind and he knew I liked Robert Wyatt and when he'd done that the concerts for Corbin yeah he'd done that thing with collaboration with Robert Wyatt and Robert come out of retirement to play and he called me and he said, we're doing a rehearsal at the barn. He said, I know you're a massive Robert Wyatt fan and Danny Thompson's coming with him. Do you want to come down? You and Neil want to pop down and meet him. You know, just something like, he didn't have to do that, you know, and, and I got to meet and, and spend a couple of hours in Robert Wyatt's company and Danny Thompson as well. We've got tons of stories about playing with Nick Drake and John Martin. It's just wonderful. Paul didn't have to do that, you know, a wonderful gesture. Yeah, that really is, isn't it? Goodness me. Um, I've got a question about Black Barn because that's obviously a very special place, not least for two businesses in Ripley Village. So the nest comes up a lot. The curry garden. Is it the curry garden? Yeah, Ripley Curry Garden. That's right. Yeah, There's yeah. not a lot of stand down there. It's a bit of a one hour stand, very posh, very nice. The village is just like one street. So there's a chip shop and there's the curry house. And there's the nest and one other cafe, and that's your, that's your lot really, and a co-op. So yeah, you're limited with your food, your food choices, and you, you all likes to wander down and have a tea and scone most mornings uh, down at the nest. So um, yeah. we've just been uh, accustomed to his ways, really. We've- it's lovely because you see them get a reference on the albums as well, which is again back to that generosity. It's really really nice. They deliver now because we've not been able to dine out. But it's, it's, it's funny. It's, that's weird as well. It's one weird thing when people say about different Weller stories and things like that. It's weird when I've been down the chip shop with Paul Weller <laughs> because you're sitting in the chippy, we're sat in the window chatting away. He's just oblivious to it, but I can see people like crashing cars and stopping on the way by thinking, it's Paul Weller. It's Paul Weller. You can see people just go, come on, come in once. And they, they were, you can see they were literally lost for words and they could just offer a hand and go, uh, it, it, it's 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 and he went, yep, that's me, Fred Bella. He's <laughs> <laughs> really comfortable with it. And I said to him, I said, Didn't it do your head in? Like, and he goes, cheese. He goes, 
mate, they support me all my life. You know, the fans have been brilliant. If I can't sign something or the currency now is a selfie or a picture, he said, what's it come to? He goes, of course, I can give a bit of time. He's brilliant. He's brilliant with his fans. It's great how he handles it all. You know, it doesn't even affect him at all. He's brilliant with that. I find it weird being with him, you know, when you're walking down the street with him, you can see everyone. <laughs> Uh, and Blackburn's a very special place for you then. As, as a studio, it gives something a bit different. Definitely, yeah. There's a magical vibe down there. Very creative atmosphere, you know. You're surrounded by all the options of, of uh, the choice of, of sounds, the instruments that are all around there as well. It's just, you know, it's like a playground. And Charles as well. I've got to give Charles a lot of respect. He's been integral and key to the last few Stone Foundation records. The guy's a genius. And he's, he really shares our vision now. We, every record, he's, he's more comfortable with how we work and, and what we're after and it just you know that relationship's really blossomed as well so just really nice environment to work in it's like a second home really there's no pressure down there it's like you know forget everything you're just making music it's brilliant I spoke to Polly the other week um, Paul's PR Polly Birkbeck and she was saying that they've been talking about the podcast of Black Barn which is a start I think you know we're getting somewhere but they were teasing Charles because Charles hadn't been invited on and he definitely has I've sent him a message so if you're listening Charles you definitely are invited <laughs> He can talk, Charlie, you know. You'll need a couple of hours of Charles. He can talk, Charles. <laughs> uh, this has been so lovely. I've got two final questions before you go. First one, you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the jam, the style council or solo. Which one's it going to be? Well, that's a tough question because for me, there's three key moments, right? There's, there's sound effects, which is major for me. And then there's the first solo album, really real special period. But, if I've got one Desert Island disc, the one record I'm going to take would be the Apari 7-inch with Long Got Summer Paris Match. Now, it might not be, you know, the most lyrically profound record, but it's, it evokes that period in time, like 1983, and it was a Long Got Summer. It was a magical time. We were really into the Soul Boy thing. The great records of that year would have been Love Town, Book of the Newbie the Third, IOU by Freeze, David Joseph, You Can't Hide Your Love, Orange Juice had come out earlier that year and rip it up. But the, the pinnacle of all that soundtrack was that Long Got Summer EP and we played it over and over again. I remember it being boiling up. The day we bought it, the day it came out, we took the seven inch to Amy's bedroom, we put it on his stereo, the windows were open, the, the, the smell of freshly cut grass was coming in, summer was out there. Magical. You know, and that whole EP, I just think, is sensational. So if I had to take one Desert Island disc for that reason, it would be that. Love it, love it. Brother Sheez, this has been brilliant. I've loved every second of this. Final question. Obviously, the point of this podcast is not only to talk to lovely people like yourself, but it's really to get that interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. Why don't you ask that, Dan? <laughs> why, why, why didn't he give you the interview? Like, well, I never asked. I never asked. That's the stupidity. Oh, um, <laughs> if it happens, what should I ask him? What should I talk to him about? Well, you could ask him when we're going to have a ceremonial burning of that Chelsea flag that's in the studio. Because... <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> oh, you're Chelsea. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it's in every picture, every video, and it's like, oh, crikey, can we take it down now? <laughs> the irony is, I don't think Paul even really likes football, to be honest. You know, I think uh, he likes the the idea, the nostalgic idea of Osgood, Benetti, and Charlie Cook and that era. But yeah, no, that needs to come down. But no, what I would do, I think, I think what is to engage him, Dan. I think like you know, it is always forward thinking stuff, and he's always on about what's you know what's new, new sounds. We're constantly texting and talking about music all the time. But when he can engage him in 
something I think when he could look back upon his career I remember taking in doing the fanboy thing and taking in a, a picture of uh, there was a promo poster I've got of money going out and I said you don't mind signing this would you and it, we looked we, we had a moment he goes yeah no problem he loves looking at me on posters and memorabilia really and he was signing it to she's and all that and we took a moment where he just stopped and looked at it and he went what a fucking great haircut that was you know he looked, <laughs> so with all that imagery that goes on I think you know you, you look at something like our favourite shop cover you've got the iconic image of Ormog Cons and then up to Stanley Road with Peter Blake I think you should dig in and ask him about the imagery and what his favourite sleeve might be really and also his guitars he's got a massive collection of guitars or if he's got a favourite guitar I've never asked him that so you know I think you should have a look at them at them sort of things and drag him back in time we're all nostalgic beasts he doesn't look back of course but he's still got that little air of he's proud of what he's done and he doesn't mind casting his eye back over things so I think you should ask him that mate I love that um, I don't know if you got Salman Halfen's book last year yeah, yeah. wonderful Brilliant. Isn't it brilliant? But it's so great looking at all the little sketches where there's like notes and direction on design and little ideas from Paul because it's, it's, it seems like it's about everything. It's not just the music, it's the look of... He, he still does that, Dan. When we, when we go in and record, it, usually it ties in with when we, he's making a record at the same time. So in and around, like we've been in and around when he's been making a fat pop and still the sketches of album sleeves and ideas and, it, it, you know, he illustrates little things and all the ideas, it's all going on all the time. So he still still does that. It's really interesting, you know, there might be little poems knocking around in the studio as well. It's fantastic. Never turns off. And, you know, I just think you can't think of another contemporary. You can go back and look at Billy Bragg, Jerry Dammers. You know, they're still around, but no one's had that output. It's constantly driving forward, moving forward, constantly changing, challenging himself as well as his audience. It's phenomenal, really. You know, he's some geezer. Yeah, real inspiration. This has been so lovely. Thank you so much for your time, Brother Shees. Um, I've enjoyed every second of this. Look forward to seeing you back on the road in 2021 and beyond and look forward to the next album, whenever that's going to come out. When do we think the album is going to land? I think it'll be early next year, maybe February. Exciting stuff. Thanks so much for this, man. Been a pleasure, mate. Thanks for having me. Cheers. My thanks once again to Shees, otherwise known as Neil Sheesby, once again. And do check out Stone Foundation's website for live gigs for 2021 and beyond and their fabulous music. Next up on the podcast, I'm joined by author and journalist John Harris. Now, not only does John write for The Guardian and Mojo magazine and has done plenty of articles with Mr. Weller, his books include The Last Party, about the culture of the 1990s. And yes, he's a massive Paul Weller super fan. Don't forget, if you've enjoyed this podcast, then please share on social media. Tag a Weller loving mate. You can also buy me a coffee and leave a review. You'll find all the details in my show notes. Get in touch on Twitter at WellerFanPod or on Instagram and Facebook. It's Paul Weller Fan Podcast. I'll see you next time. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. 
If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.